And so we have <clears throat> this um, passage here in Matthew at the close of the chapter in which Jesus uh, has been uh, speaking with his disciples and traveling with them uh, in various locations. We had a moment in which he just um, uh, gave a great title to his chief disciple, you would say, Peter, who is the leader of uh, his group. And uh, he sp spoke of Peter being the rock on which he would build the church. He would assemble people around uh, himself and call this his ecclesia, which is a word that simply just means assembly or gathering. At that high point where Peter discovers that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus was very happy with him saying that, then he pivots to say, yes, but you don't know why I'm here yet. You might have finally found out, this question we've been asking is, who is Jesus Christ? But then the follow-up question, which is equally important, but not equally clear to all his disciples is, but why are you here? And so Jesus begins to answer that question. Verse 21, he says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned aside, he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, here is his call to you today. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. It's a remarkable thing that Jesus just said to them. He has laid out the beginning structure for how the rest of the whole gospel of Matthew will make sense and for every decision that Jesus will make going forward with his disciples closely following by his side. All the questions they ask and all the reasons they want to know is Jesus, why are you doing this and not that? Why are you going here and not there? It all pivots on what he has to say now which is that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer. This is the suffering. And we find here in suffering a reason to make sense of it all. So if we were to 
uh, pull the room from left to right, and everyone had a moment to at least say uh, one or two things. The most deep, the, the darkest, uh, the, the lowest points of your life, where have you suffered the most? There would be significant stories to be shared. One of the struggles I deal with pastorally is when I look at someone's face, all I know is their face. And particularly people I don't know well who are visiting the church or I'm beginning to know, that there is a depth to some people that you would never know. There are people you're sitting close to right now that you don't even know what they've been through. But I can at least say, or what they're in right now, what they're going through, that whatever you might be able to recollect as one of those moments in which you desperately suffered, if you could recall that now for this morning, And I'd like you to put it before the Lord so that you can actually learn and begin to see the wisdom of the cross, to know how to make sense of suffering, to know how to make sense of all the suffering in our life. There's a certain type of suffering we know of that is much more than uh, stubbing your toe on your nightstand. That suffering I think we'd raise our hand and say, I will take that any day. Because after like one minute, it's cool. It's great. That was annoying. That hurt. It's over. But you see, we know the kind of suffering that goes past the flesh, right? It's not that kind of corporal suffering of breaking your arm or stubbing your toe. But there's a type of piercing that happens inside the soul. To be cut to the heart and and truly sad about a nagging, anxious, uh, despairing thought or darkness that just presses upon your mind. You know how these happen. You get wrapped up inside of them. And most, most pointedly happens when you are extended to other people that you love. And you see them suffering. And you see them going through a dark period in which you actually are powerless to help them. That, that type of pain is different than stubbing your toe. That thing goes very deep. That sword cuts very close to your very psyche. The word here, when Jesus speaks about your life, is, he, is the word soul, which is the word suke, which is where we get the word psychology, which is our modern idea of just adding more flavorful terms to describe the ancient problem of having your heart flayed open for some reason, having your psychology cut, having your very soul hurt down to the depths. This is what Jesus is addressing. To understand suffering, we have to hear this phrase. He transitions to his disciples, and we're told At that time, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer. That's the point at which Peter decides to pull him aside and say, that doesn't fit with my theology. That doesn't fit with how I see you. It's worse, see, to suffer when you don't expect it, right? When 
when we're constantly told, and it is an amazing thing to be in the 21st century, and understand that we are the people who have lived the least amount of suffering in many ways throughout the history of the world, really. I mean, we are very blessed. We have so many things working for us. We have cars that work for us and everything in between, and I can make a cup of coffee and press a button and walk out of the kitchen and come back and there's a cup of coffee for me. That's wild, right? Like, when you live in that world... Right? And there's a particular wrong thing that happens to you. Oh my gosh, how could this be for me? Everything else has worked for me. It makes suffering actually worse because it is so shocking and jarring to everything we should assume or think. It's very ironic. That this verse comes from 1 Peter 4.12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's Peter who said that. Peter, who is with Jesus now, we're told... He pulls Jesus aside after now, Je- now Peter's the rock of the church, which is pretty awesome. And so he takes on his newfound uh, position or authority to say, now I need to correct the Messiah. Far be it from you, Lord, he says. Far be it from you that this should ever happen to you. There's no comport. There's no place in his mind for this suffering. Jesus sharply turns him back aside and said, no, you get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the mind of God. You are thinking along the mind of men. There's the point presented for us this morning. There is a thinking, a mind orientation that makes sense of suffering. The mind of God. You have the things of God upon your mind. And there is a thinking, a mind orientation that is worldly man-oriented, that actually is surprised, shocked, and not able to understand the suffering of this world. Jesus pauses him there to say, this is where the disconnect is. You are thinking along the lines of man. I am here to do the will of God. And it is particularly at the point of suffering that that disconnect emerges. Making sense of suffering will be that. As we see here this morning, I want you to enter into this and see what Jesus is presenting to him. The fact that it would be the mindset that prepares us to understand suffering in our life. The fact that we would have a mindset oriented toward God has everything to do with one word. Sojourn. To sojourn means to travel. Or sojourn means to uh, be a temporary resident of some place. If you can conceive of your life as nothing more than a traveling, suffering makes perfect sense. If you are content in this life, it is if you have the mind of men, the world of men, the domain of men, this place we live right now here in this present, suffering will have nothing in your heart. You, you could not handle it. You cannot deal with it the way God would have it. But if you can see your life as passing through. See, there's an elder in this church an elder man, uh, Bill Keppel, who has that phrase where he says that. 
believe he's 90. I don't see him here today. If not, he might stand up. No. He says, we're just passing through. Now, I could go down to the uh, children's praise over there in the South Building and ask one of the six-year-olds. And they could say, yes, in life we're just passing through. But it's different when a man who's 90 says that. He's taking care of his wife. He says, we are just passing through. Makes a lot more sense. There are some men here in the church who went on a biking trip down to Florida uh, through the Keys. And when they came back, they biked for miles, almost all week. And they came back, I asked one of them, well, how was it? How was the trip? And uh, he said, it was awesome. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm glad I went. I never want to do that again. (laughs) It was fun. The scenery is beautiful, he said. We're driving on a highway with semis. It was stressful. And I felt like if I fell, I was going to die. And it was really fun. I'm glad I did it. And I never want to do that again. Do you see? That is, if you can see your life that way, it all makes sense. Now you understand why you suffer. It is a good life. God has given you energy today to live today. You have trials upon your life. There's beautiful scenery down in the Keys, and there's dangerous semis five feet from your elbow. So be alert. You could fall and scrape your knee, and you'll never have to do this again. That's your life. Powerful to see yourself as a sojourner who suffers because it is dynamic, it is moving, it is traveling, it is looking, it is moving toward a destination. Therefore, your suffering has purpose. And if your suffering has purpose, you can handle anything. If your suffering does not have intellection, intelligibility, if it doesn't have purpose, if you cannot make sense of it, that is what we might just call hell. Hell, properly understood, is suffering with no redemption, suffering with no end toward a goal. So yes, to understand suffering, you have to see yourself as a sojourner for Jesus Christ. He is speaking to his disciples here. And so for these points we'll see this morning, these three, is that as we see ourselves as travelers, sojourners that suffer, we have three focuses to our eyes, three things we look upon, three points in our GPS, triangulating our navigation so that we can sojourn through this suffering of this age, which is this, Jesus Christ in his crucifixion. We look not only to Jesus and his crucifixion, we look to ourselves, and here's the word, being cruciform. Crucifix, cruciform. Jesus in his crucifix, then we look to him, we look to ourselves, 
to be cruciformed, to be formed after the image of Jesus Christ in the cross. And lastly, knowing that we are sojourners traveling to a destination, we look to where we are going, which is most beautifully said in the word communion. Communion with the living God. More than you've ever experienced now. As Chris even opened us up in worship and said, this moment, we are in a sense communing with God. But what we know now is nothing compared to entering into his throne room of glory and beholding God as he is. That's where we're going. If you understand those three points, the crucifixion, your cruciformation, and the fact that you are going toward everlasting communion with the living God, suffering serves a purpose, it makes sense. And I would say, on the authority of Jesus Christ, you can handle anything that God might give you. Particularly because the scriptures say, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will always provide a way out. Physically, or even psychologically, there is no need to wallow in the depths of despair. Once you know why the suffering is there. So how we see here the hint of this cross. To look to Jesus, the crucifixion. He began to show his disciples that he must suffer many things by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. There it is. I'm going down there to be crucified. That doesn't say it explicitly till later that it would be a crucifixion. That he should be killed and on the third day rise again. All suffering must bow its knee to the cross of Calvary. Do you understand? Jesus is not suffering in the sense that he's just suffering for himself or he's just suffering to show you a good example of how to suffer. He is suffering for you. That's the gospel. This is not self-help. This is not Jordan Peterson. He is suffering for you. You might want to make your bed if you want, but you cannot save yourself. He's not showing you how to try to suffer. He is suffering in your behalf. So therefore, any suffering that you have has to bow its knee there to know that this is for you. He is suffering for you. It's like sinking down low. See, Jesus is in the furthest north he's ever recorded in the Gospels as being, near Caesarea Philippi. He's never been that far from all of Jerusalem. And from that point, the image of a traveler, a sojourner, he has to travel from the highest point in the map down to the belly of the beast. That is to go inside of Jerusalem and be consumed by her. The Pharisees and the elders and the scribes, all those who surely want to kill Jesus. And Peter knows this well enough. The reason he pulls them aside to say, no, you can't do that, you know, because they're going to kill you. He's like, exactly. And that's why I have to go. He's sojourning into that suffering. And it is a descent. He is going down low. Have you ever received just that news, that terrible news, whether it be a phone call or friend, or someone comes to you and says, are you sitting down? I mean, I literally actually just had one of those conversations this week. Someone asked me, like, can you sit down and talk with me? And I said, is it good news or bad news? They said, bad news. And I said, okay, I'll sit down. Because when the voice comes to you and says, he is lost, or 
the diagnosis is or when someone says, no, there was an accident. If you've been through that yet, you know what your soul does there. It sinks. It sinks low. But you have to understand, even when you hear that, the words of Jesus Christ are that he must descend to Jerusalem. And I promise you, there is no depth your soul can go that Jesus Christ did not meet in that city. And you must know he did it consciously, willingly, and not for himself. He did it for you. And all your suffering is in that. You can never outrun him or outreach him. He descended to Jerusalem. See, Jesus is preparing this for his disciples. He's showing them what he actually has come to do. He suffered as a sojourner, passing through all of Israel from the north of Caesarea, Philippi, down to the bottom in Jerusalem. He's passing through the nation as one kind of triumphal entry into his death so that he might conquer death, because the phrase is, and then, on the third day, the Son of Man will rise. He is parading himself through the suffering for you. The ultimate sin is suffering. All of this has to do with sin. He's not suffering for the sake of suffering. He's not suffering because we just suffer. We suffer because this world is sin-ridden, and he is Reversing the curse. He says this particularly. And this is important to see. He says, I must suffer by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Do you remember the beginning of the Gospels? We're introduced to Jesus and he's walking through the wilderness. and Satan comes to him and tempts him. He's on a high pinnacle. Satan said, now, throw yourself down from there and try to kill yourself. He'll command his angels to protect you, concerning you. And Jesus simply said, no, I will not test God. There's a reason. What's the difference between taking yourself on a high pinnacle and throwing yourself down to die, as opposed to taking yourself from the top of Israel at Caesarea Philippi, and throwing yourself the whole way down into Jerusalem, into the hands and the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, to die, inevitably, both almost definitively result in death, The difference is, one is by the hand of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. See, Jesus had to suffer and die a judicial death. Why? For you. Why? Because you're condemned in your sin. And you all suffer because of your sin. It's not as though just the death is what needs to be done. It has to be a death that pushes all the weight of all the professionals. That is, all the biblical professionals, the scribes and the Pharisees, who can take their interpretation of the whole law, even though misinterpreted, and throw it upon the shoulders of Jesus and let him be condemned by the very representational offices of that law. And he died in that for you. He was condemned judiciously. And he suffered a perfect life. 
for you. You see, he had to live that life that was of perfection. He had to offer that one up. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, Behold, I come, as in the scroll it is written of me of old, to do your will, O God, is surely my delight. No one has ever said that. The one who said that went into Jerusalem for you. He took that life who was always pleasingly wanting to do the will of God. And that's the life he put before for you to suffer for you. And most importantly, he suffered not only a perfect life for you or a penal death for you. He suffered through. I want you to understand this phrase. It's a powerful phrase. He suffered through for you. Let me try to explain why that is important to say. He suffered through for you. We have a bereavement group, a ministry here in the church. There's probably a table for it out in the South Building. If you could see them, that would interest you, then do that. See, in the bereavement group, they have a thing they say for people who are grieved and suffering. They say, now you cannot get around your suffering. That is, you can't avoid it. Your life will have suffering. And you cannot get under your suffering. That is, when suffering comes your way, it is not healthy for you to bury your head, to avoid, to stay home, to be a recluse, to try to get away from all this life because it's so full of suffering. And surely we know, especially if you're in the depths of it, that it is absolutely improper to say to someone, well, just get over it. You can't get over your suffering. That's a superficial band-aid to a deep wound in the soul. You simply just won't get over it. But on the authority of Jesus Christ, because of the actual real gospel, you are able to get through your suffering. You actually can get through the thing. For he says, the Son of Man must go into Jerusalem and be killed. And on the third day, rise. That is, there is no place you can go in suffering in which if it is tied to Jesus Christ, will not be through that suffering. Because there is no suffering superior to the actual suffering he endured for you on that cross. And that suffering could not hold him. And if he holds you, whether you let go of him, it does not matter because you will be through that suffering as he has went through that suffering and holds you through that suffering. You can get through any suffering in Jesus' name. This is the promise. This is the hope. This is how the gospel actually makes sense of suffering. It is through the crucifixion. And it's all tied to this second point, which is being cruciform. That is, 
you and I are called to be formed after Jesus. After this will be Jesus being transfigured on a mountain. And he will be glorious. And in some way we will be like him that way. But before this is a crucifixion. And do you see that even there, he invites you to image him that way. His words are, if anyone would come after me, now, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And there's the cruciform image. Take up that cross. Take it upon yourself. Accept this image upon yourself. And then come and follow me. Follow me, which is what? What sojourners do. What travelers do. You see, all this suffering only makes sense in the fact that you are moving. That you are walking. In what way? Jesus, you are following him. And what is he doing? Oh, just being crucified. And we don't even get to observe or watch just simply as spectators. But he actually says, anyone who would claim to be my disciple, anyone who would claim to actually follow me in this way, yes, pick up your cross. Be cruciformed. Be formed after my crucifixion. Image me. Mimic me. Invite this type of suffering upon your life. It is actually, he says, my will for you. Explicitly stated here. So how to make sense of suffering? It must all be molded into the image of the cross. You are destined to become cruciformed. And no, we don't have to overly spiritualize the verse, right? What does he mean here? What he actually really means to the people he's speaking to? Some of them would actually be crucified like Jesus for following Jesus. So the image, though it can mean more, means no more less than being willing to die for Christ. That's what a disciple is. Someone who is actually willing to forsake all things so that you might have the Lord Jesus. This morning, we pray before the service, as usual, and I was speaking to uh, Chris, who's actually listening to um, uh, a writing from Solzhenitsyn, who was uh, wrote about um, the gulags and all the things that happened in Russia. And in his account of those things, of those who were suffering of starvation and being tortured, the ones who were able to endure it, of course, just this morning we were talking about this, is that they realized they had nothing. If they let go of everything, if they let go of their hope, if they let go of their plans, if they let go of the fact that they might never eat again, if they let go of the fact that their clothes weren't even theirs, if they let go of the fact of everything, they found peace. Because if they could let go of everything, then their captors could never take anything from them because they didn't have anything except themselves. How remarkable is that when we hear what Jesus has to say? 
Deny yourself. Deny yourself. God cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, he is faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. The gospel only works if we understand that we must deny ourselves. That is, in at least in two ways. Clear, pure repentance. That is your identity. Who are you? Who do you say you are? Who do you think you are? Who cares? Throw it all away. Deny your very being. So that you might first understand your being is predicated on the great being of God. Apart from that, you can have no communion with Jesus Christ. That is, you actually have to deny your life. Jesus knows what he's asking his disciples. I'm going down to Jerusalem. And if you follow me, you understand you're going to be killed too, don't you? Our culture and our understanding is so much on the opposite. That it is your identity, your perspective, your thinking of yourself that is very, very important. Don't ever deny yourself. Don't ever deny what you think of yourself. And Jesus says, oh, quite opposite. You must deny yourself. You must deny your predilection for sustaining your own life. And then you're finally free. Because there's nothing this world can grab onto you. There's no hooks. There's no handles. There's no footholds, as Ephesians says, for Satan to be able to grab you and pull you into, this is the dialectic of the mind of men or the mind of God. If you do not want to be taken in by the way of this world and thinking of the ways of men, then you must be free from all places for the world to grab you, which means what? You must be free from everything. You must deny everything, even your own life. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Do you see what Jesus has done, though, for you? He is never asking of you anything that he has not already done for you himself. For Jesus, in the very essence of the gospel, is him, in his human nature, denying himself. That is, there is no sadistic interest in Jesus wanting to just suffer for suffer's sake. He does not want to suffer. In the garden, he prays, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Let me not go to this cross. But he goes to this cross because he denied that particular desire to sustain life, to hold what's best for your own interest. He gave that up. He took on that humanity and gave that humanity up freely for you. And then he says, now you do the same. Live like me. Be cruciformed like me. Do you understand now how you can make sense of suffering? That it actually is the very tool in which God is fashioning you into the image of his son? Not that we would want it, but when it comes, at least it makes sense. At least it has a purpose. At least I know God's hand is in it. At least I know he's not against me. He hasn't cursed me. In fact, he's forming out a blessing for me. That I would be formed after his own son. There is no greater blessing he has for you. So deny yourself, he says. Deny yourself. This great perennial temptation, he says, and this is the temptation of this world for sure, to save your life. 
Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a great, famous missionary, Jim Elliot, who actually gave himself and his life to be killed in the mission field. His most famous quote is simply this. He is not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do you hear that? This massive misconception of the gospel is that you should come to Jesus so that you can be saved. Save your life. Go to Jesus. No. That actually is not the gospel. The gospel is come to Jesus that you may die in order that you may truly live. Truly live in the presence of God. Truly live in communion with Him. Therefore, you must actually die to yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. So with all this to make sense of suffering, Jesus leaves His disciples. He particularly leaves you this morning with these two questions. Think of this. Consider your life. What profit, he says, what profit is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his very soul? Do you see the word there, soul, as we said, psychology or suke, could either mean your very essence, your soul, or your actual life, your living power, your physical life. So it's a play on words, essentially, in which he says, why would you seek to gain your whole world? That is, exhaust your physical life, your suke, your soul. Give that out, all your energy. Seek everything you can in this life. Look for everything this life can give you and get as much of it as you can. And at the end of the day, however successful you have been, you've lost. You've lost for that which was given to you. The power and energies of which your emotions of all your life, they are limited And you only have so much time of physical life. And if you exhaust those things for this world, you have given what was most important, was the life that the Lord gave you back to worship and finding Christ so that you might have true life. You've exhausted that for the world and ended up without life. You see the need for Jesus in all of this. For the question is, what can a man give In return for his soul. Nothing, of course. Why? For the soul is your life. So if your life is in the balance, if your life is actually the ransom, what can you ransom for your ransom? What can you give for your life? For your life is the thing required of you. All that you have is your life. All that you have is your energy. All you have is your hands. He's not talking about, oh, you could give a toe or a foot. Or you could give your car, your PNC bank account. No, 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 no. The thing to be demanded of you is you. And all you have is you. And everything that appendages and augments to your being. So if the center of it is taken out, that is, your very being is what is commanded, what can you offer for it? Because outside of your being, you have nothing else. And so Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem to suffer. To give my life 
for you. For you have nothing to give for your own life. There's nothing but your life you have to give. What a beautiful gospel. And it all makes sense. And the final point of all this suffering is that, of course, you see it as we sojourn and journey through this life to the crucifixion. And we see it as we sojourn through this life and looking to ourselves to be cruciformed, formed after Jesus in our suffering, to understand the purpose for it. And that great purpose is communion. You are passing through. You need to hear me say this because I guarantee you won't hear it anywhere else the rest of the week. Unless you're in some small group or you get to talk to another brother and sister in Christ, I promise you, you will not hear anyone in the worldly system under the deception of Satan himself tell this to you. The purpose of your life is to behold the glory of God. If you remember that, everything else, yes, even your deepest and darkest suffering makes sense. The news organizations will not remind you of this tomorrow. The stock market brokers will not remind you of this tomorrow. The warlords in Ukraine are looking to add to their hegemony just one more square meter will not remind you of the fact of the truth is the purpose of your life is to behold the glory of God. And therefore, he will form you into his likeness. As John says, that when we see him, we will be like him, for we will be made like him. And that process has begun. Crucifixion has been established. Your cruciformation is underway. And you will behold the glory of Jesus Christ as you suffer. Because you are just passing through. Let us praise God for that. In his mighty name, let us pray. Father God, I thank you. That we have, by your grace, been given wisdom to know what it is. We know what it is all about. We know where our suffering goes. We know that you count those tears. We know that you will wipe them dry because we know where we are going, that we are sojourners, Lord. We know that Jesus Christ, our great Savior, has passed through this land in only 30 years plus, and we will follow with him. For we will suffer through with him so we might behold his glory and have riches and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Jesus, Lord, we ask you for your blessing upon us as New Life Church, that you would hold us together to this end, that you would graft in many who would come to see the light of that glory and the glimpses now in this life, and only behold it in its fullness in the age to come. Lord Jesus Christ, you must keep us, and we know in your name you are powerful enough. Even you are powerful enough to save. Amen. Would you please stand if you're able?